This episode was recorded live during the NFLC Virtual Summit in June. NFLC is the National Foreign Language Center at the University of Maryland. I'm joined by Benjamin Tinsley, a French teacher in Philadelphia. He had joined me back on episode 27 when we talked about diversifying the world language curriculum. In this episode, Ben talks with me about equitable feedback practices in the language classroom. This recording was viewed live by hundreds of participants, and the live recording now has over 2,500 views. The link to the live recording is in the show notes if you want to see a little bit of what it looks like behind the scenes. I want to thank Ben so much for his willingness to take this on with me. I'll check back with you after the conversation, but for now, let's jump in. Are you a language teacher looking for some reassurance that what you're doing in the classroom is on the right track? Or maybe you're looking for some ways to teach even more effectively. If you're one or the other or somewhere in between, you've landed in the right place. This is the World Language Classroom Podcast with your host, me, Joshua Cabral. You're about to get tips, tools, and resources so that your students continue to rise in proficiency and communicate with confidence. Let's jump in. Vamos, allons-y. Hello, my friends. Bonjour, mes amis. Hola, mis amigos. Welcome to the World Language Classroom podcast today, which we are doing our first live stream podcast episode. And I'm joined today by Ben Tensley. Hello there, Ben. Hello, my good friend. So I am doing this live stream event for the uh, NFLC Virtual Summit, Summit, and the NFLC is the National Foreign Language Center at the University of Maryland, and the summit is being sponsored by or powered by, I believe is what they say, PEARL, which is Professionals in Education Advancing Research and Language Learning. So I've never done a live version of the podcast before, um, so this is really exciting and having an opportunity for teachers to kind of see behind the scenes what we look like when we're doing this. Uh, but I just wanted to say that I am so, it is so wonderful to see teachers taking time out of their summer to yes. attend this type of PD. I mean, it's one yeah. thing when you're in that mindset during the school year, but when you have the opportunity to like I call it your summer headspace to fill some of your summer headspace with this. This this means yeah. that we have some incredible educators out there. Yeah. So how you doing, Ben? I'm good. I'm tired and stressed, but excited and all those things all at once. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, hopefully it, it wraps together and, and makes it an OK experience for you in the <laughs> end. <laughs> Thank uh, you, friend. Yeah. Um, so we had our first conversation on the podcast, Ben and I, uh, back in episode 27, where we talked about diversity in diversifying our curriculum in the world language classroom. So when I thought, who do I want to have as a guest on this podcast episode, I thought right away, <laughs> one of the best conversations I had was with Ben, who he told me to call him Benzo, everybody. So I'm going to call him Benzo as well. He said I could call him Benzo. So I still stands. awesome. So <laughs> I immediately said, I, I want to continue that conversation because when you have a good conversation, you want to keep going. And it just so happens that this topic today that we want to talk about equitable feedback practices is yeah. in line with the topics that have been happening throughout the, the virtual summit today. Um, so 
with this idea of equitable feedback practices, um, you know, the, there's so much wrapped up, up into it in terms of when we're talking about social justice standards and yeah. windows and mirrors and all that. And I'm going to let you do a ton of topping, talking on this this episode to let us in on all this. But I just want to make sure everyone knows who you are, Ben, yeah. so that uh, they see, wow, this this is uh, this is a person who really he's walking the walk with all of this. And so Ben, uh, he you may have seen him uh, on social media. He's Afro Franco and his website is afrofranco.com. And I was first introduced to his world um, through his videos where he shows, he just videotapes himself in the classroom. And it's sort of, this is some really cool, effective teaching that's going on. And that's how I was first introduced to it. And so he's, he's been doing this teaching thing for, he just ended his 13 year, 13th hey. year, he told me earlier. And he is a, a teacher in Pennsylvania and so he has a, a unique lens on being a French teacher, a, a lens that I personally don't have as a white person and understand all the privilege that comes along with that. And as much as I attempt to diversify my curriculum, um, whether it's in a French classroom or a Spanish classroom, I I need the guidance of teachers that are truly in the reality of living that every day as a window and a mirror experience. And so that's why I wanted to really continue this conversation with Ben. And one thing I want to say is that your quote on your website about who you are and what you do, um, <laughs> his, his eyes get really big. He's like, I hope it's the right quote. Yeah, but, I'm uh, nervous. I got a no, lot of No, no, it's... Uh, it's <laughs> It's it just it's so definitely shows what you do as a teacher. And you say in my classroom as a French teacher, I've committed to writing, building, delivering and sharing curricula that exclusively centers black faces and voices from the French speaking world. I love how deliberate you are Yeah, with that. And so. Can you just, okay, now I've done a ton of talking now, and now this is going to be a, a platform for you, okay? No, 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 it's it's <laughs> And happens. I'm really good at smiling and nodding. Yeah. Too, so well, I get excited in these conversations. Uh, for sure. But with what I just said about who you are and what you do, uh, can you bring us to, like, bring us through that journey of how you got there, and you said, yeah. this is what I want to do as a teacher, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you framing it as a journey because it's been exactly that. Is that um, there's been a ton of unlearning that's had to happen. You know, I think just through the work that I've done and through my own practice as a teacher, you realize how much you rely on what you've been taught and that sometimes you have to take a step back to just imagine the world a little bit differently to realize that teaching language can look a little different than you learned it as the language nerd kid that you definitely were. <laughs> and as it was taught by the people that you consider to be experts at the time. So there's been half of my career, if not more than that, has just been like unlearning that. And then the other piece that you mentioned, which, you know, I'll say proudly is that I am deliberate about it. And it's taken a lot for me to get to a place where I'm as deliberate and as unapologetic about it. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't come without a cost, right? So like, 
the spaces in which I work and just considering the national climate, the international climate, where to say, to mention race is to, is to be racist in the eyes mm -hmm. of many people. And so um, for me to be in a place where I, where I do center black and brown voices and places, particularly now in the spaces where I am, where the vast majority of my students do not identify as black or brown, um, has taken a lot of work. And it's taken for me to be this guy who looks the way I look with piercings and tattoos and, and locks and all that. I'm sort of always fighting this uphill battle of, of, of establishing that I have somewhat of an idea as to what I'm talking about. And so there's a lot of reasons for which I'm, I'm resentful about that. But I also know that that's sharpened my sword so much this is um, when I get into these spaces and I have to justify what I'm doing. And then ultimately, not to keep rambling, but seeing that the impact and the ripple effect beyond my classroom, you know, that what my students are doing and what my students are being exposed to and, and the sort of ends that I have in mind for them, that it feels really good for me as I'm teaching it and I'm imagining what that would have been like for a 15 year old version of myself, but also knowing that they're going to be out in the world making changes one way or the other. So um, that's really like a driving force in continuing that journey because that journey's not done either, mm -hmm. which is a big part of it. Yeah, I like the that visual, the ripple effect. You know, it's yeah. sort of it starts there and, and ripples out. And sure. so you talked a little bit about sort of how you've seen the benefits and success of this work, yeah. but. I'm just wondering, can you think of something like a really specific thing that's happened or something you've seen a student do that you think, wow, this work is definitely beneficial for students? Yeah, for sure. I mean, on a somewhat superficial level, but not really, is I use this example a lot of a student who reached out to me a few summers ago to tell me that they were in a cab in New York City and they... Uh, their cab driver happened to be from Algeria. And so they start speaking French for a half hour. They said they spoke French with this person. And not only did they speak French to the person, but they knew about cities in Algeria, right? They knew about indigenous peoples from Algeria. So the amount of times that I've been in that exact scenario where if you find out that where someone's from or if you ask where they're from and they say Africa and that you ask a little bit more, Mm -hmm. And to just see how how important it is for a person to be seen to that extent, to know that saying Africa is, I want to know more. I do. I know more. I, I see your identity as being worthy of exploration, worthy of connection, so much so that, that this entire continent of 11.7 million square miles, mm -hmm. I'm not going to conflate it into one, one culture and one language and all that. So I've had a handful of experiences like that with students, all the way to students who go on to uh, study the language in universities and colleges that other people mm -hmm. think are impressive um, and to go and do things. I have a student right now who just graduated. I'm not going to get too much into the details, but um, just graduated from undergrad is taking a year off between undergrad and then med school, but they double majored in pre-med and French and wants to eventually work in West Africa to, uh, you know, as a doctor. Wow. And yeah, and this is a black woman as well. This mm -hmm. is a young black woman. So for that student to have seen their own potential and to see that they can connect with the world that looks like them and that shares experiences, lived experiences that reflect their own, that's that's a biggie for me. That's yeah. a real biggie for me. Excellent. So 
you ready to jump into this conversation that's specifically feedback and equitable <laughs> feedback? Let's get it, man. All I'm right, ready. so let's do this. So I would like to start with just some terminology, just to make sure we're all yep. using the same words to say the same thing. So there's this idea of culturally responsive teaching, and I would... I don't necessarily know that it's Zaretta Hammond who kind of created that language or that she's just sure. the name I associate with it. But what does that mean to be culturally responsive with our teaching and in our classrooms for you? Yeah. So for me, specifically in a language classroom, I mean, I feel like language lends so well to that. And it's just accepting that the content itself isn't always, if ever, the actual aim right, that we're using the content to do something for people in the world. So culturally responsive teaching in the classroom, I mean, there's so many different applications, but just from a simple level of saying that um, the cultures and the people behind the language matter more than filling out, than diagramming the sentences of the languages. And that that's, that's the objective, right, that we're doing it from that aim. Um, and then that the student matters it's a real sort of operationalized way to have a student-centered classroom to know that whether regardless of how those students identify across the multiple identities that they have right that those are going to be filters and lenses through which they see the world and that they're going to use the world to examine those lenses right that they're going to use the content and and, and the things that we're doing in my classroom and beyond hopefully for them to step back and say, oh, I'm a person with a culture. I have things that I've been been conditioned to know and to believe that are not universal and that can be approached with, through a critical lens. So to be culturally responsive in, in the classroom generally, I think is to acknowledge the personhood of both the student, of the teacher, and the content or the, the, the target cultures or target languages or whatever it is that you end up teaching. I that word personhood acknowledge the personhood oh. uh, that's uh just like hearing a concept just by using that that term it really encapsulated that that explanation so thank right. you for that thank you yeah and the um just that mention of no student is going to be one dimensional and there's this idea oh. of the intersectionality that you referenced in there that you're you're not just a female you're not just a male you're connected in all these other experiences and identities and that's important to keep in mind as well big time big time so a little more uh terminology to make sure again we're on the same page um words that come up a lot um equity and equality so what is i i hear I have, a, I think I have a solid understanding of them, but I still hear them conflated. So how do you see those? Yeah. Words? Well, language is wild. Mm-hmm. And when you say you hear them conflated, a, a, a current struggle I have is knowing that that conflation is strategic. Mm-hmm. You know, language gets co-opted by people who, who have like nefarious ends, you know, so people now will hear equity and they'll be like, well, that's CRT and mm. CRT is evil, right? And they know that that's wrong. They just also know that if you can control a narrative, then you got, you know, control. That said, though, I see equity and equality as two, like equity is 
the means towards an objective of equality. And so the conflation of the two for me to suggest that equality means that we're going to start giving everyone the same thing is to deliberately ignore the goal of reaching an equal playing field or equal access to opportunities and all that. So equity is for us to assess what needs to get done so that we can achieve equality. And so um, what that looks like in the classroom as a teacher is to really examine critically what are the things that we're doing? What have we established as our goals? And how can we create uh, an atmosphere? How can we create, you know, digging from, from Zaretta Hammond's incredible work too. How can we create feedback that is instructive toward those objectives, you know, so that our students have equal access to those things. And importantly too, not to, you know, hug the microphone right now, but importantly- It's why you're here. This is why yeah. you're here. <laughs> Importantly, is for them to see those systems that have created those inequ those inequities and begin to dismantle them. Right? I, I I think last time we spoke, I talked to you a bit about how I've struggled with a feeling of abandonment that I spent half of my career working in under resourced and you know inner city schools, but like schools where the vast majority of the population are um, undereducated, under resourced, and all that sort of stuff. And now that I teach in these independent schools where there's resources for days. And while the, I still have abandoned those kids and I, that's something I got to live with, I also got to know that these kids that I'm teaching now are ultimately going to be in positions of power. And so when they are in those positions, what can they do with what they did in my class beyond diagram sentences? Mm -hmm. You know, what is it that they're doing in my class that can make it so the next person doesn't have to change their name, doesn't have to anglicize their name or hide their accent or try to modify their accent, right? Um, so that they can be taken seriously in a job interview, but so that their verbal tics don't have to change, right? I say, you know what I'm saying? Someone else says, you know, mm -hmm. and one of the two of those things, though they're both verbal tics, one of those is deemed as like improper English versus another one is just normal. So to use what we're doing in those classrooms, again, towards an equitable aim sometimes means to burn everything to the ground mm -hmm, <laughs> and mm -hmm. to see how we can sort of strategically uh, burn it all to the ground. Yeah. So I'm um, going a little bit more down uh, this road uh, with equity and equality. Um, as I, I often say that I appreciate the opportunity to reach out to teachers who are just, they have so much to offer. And so I'm going to mm -hmm. use this opportunity to ask you my personal questions about mm -hmm. this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. And I, and I figure if I have it, at least one other teacher listening will have this question. For sure. So I'm uh, with this idea of equality and, and equity, I am doing sort of my, my, my best efforts with it. At least I, I think I am. Yeah. And I try to have inclusive teaching. Mm -hmm. inclusive of uh, different lived experiences in my classroom. Sure. And I sometimes think that by doing that, I'm also therefore being an anti-racist teacher at the same time. Okay. And I don't think I, I need to understand better. Like what's the, the, like, yes, we're going to be inclusive and focus on equity, but what's that extra step to actually mm -hmm. be an anti-racist teacher classroom experience? Uh, um, 
Well, I'll start by saying I threw that, a hardball. I'm really yeah, sorry. <laughs> We're live too, bro. Dude. Yes, right? Uh, <laughs> but I knew well, you could I mean, handle it. That's why I asked. Yeah, yeah, here we go. <laughs> I mean, I think it's important to this. This keeps coming up for me that um, the idea of having to be an expert in things. I have no idea the answer to your question. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say I have no idea. But I don't have an answer to your question. And that sort of like intellectual humility is the same intellectual humility that I want teachers to have when they're in the classroom, afraid to talk about these different Francophone cultures or whatever, afraid to talk about difficult conversations. And I put that in quotes and I'll dive into that another time, but afraid to have these difficult conversations because they don't feel like they have expertise in it. And the reality is that these are journeys that we can go along, that we can go into alongside our students. And there's so much value in saying to a 12 year old, I don't know. I'm, I don't know everything that there is to know about Senegalese music, right? But I'm excited to learn about it with you. And we're gonna go into it being careful of the following things. And we're gonna critique one another if we mess up, but we're also gonna see what is our aim, right? And so I think that approach to start out with the humility and to be able to not see yourself as a teacher who needs to be the expert who then like, you know, deposits knowledge into the student, into the empty vessel of the student. If you can start from that place to say, I'm doing the work alongside you, then that's a big step. That said though, inclusive teaching, I don't, I see them sort of parallel to the whole equality versus equity thing, or versus uh, and equity thing. In that inclusive, inclusive teaching is a really important piece, right? in the toward the aim of anti-racist teaching mm -hmm. i see anti-racist teaching more about dismantling systems mm -hmm. and inclusive teaching is like a way toward that that said though i struggle with the term inclusion this is quoting the great dr yaba blay if y'all don't follow her already she's a former professor of mine at temple university and one of the most brilliant people in the world um sort of paraphrasing her when you use the word inclusion, I still know whose house I'm in. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about what I do in my classroom to center black and brown voices, we're not being included. You know, it's not a matter of adding to something else as, as an extension toward other things that we've deemed clearly as being more important because they're centered. We're going to center black and brown voices because I know that you're not necessarily going to get that somewhere else. And that I know that that by 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 centering the cultural practices and products and perspectives of black and brown people is to um is to start to dismantle a system that has marginalized them you know mm -hmm. they are not marginal people they are marginalized people we are not you know and so that's one step mm -hmm. among a billion that i'm still sort of working on but to to boil it down <laughs> and to cut short this little soliloquy that I'm hitting you with um, is to center these voices and to not wait until the month of February, mm -hmm. to not wait until Pride Month, you know, to not wait until these sort of like add-ons, but to say we're going to do this every day. And we still manage to talk about likes and dislikes and communities and all those mm -hmm. other things. We just do it through through the lens and um, and and having centered Black people and brown yeah. people. Well, that was awesome. So thank yes. you. Thank you for that. No, no, no. It's, uh, I, it's whenever you like you, 
you throw out like the the challenge the big challenges that we're all grappling with that don't have a yes or no answer and i wasn't Mm. necessarily looking for a yes or no answer but your perspective on it and when you just took on the idea of uh, intellectual humility (laughs) and like that that just reminder right there i'm like oh okay that's i need to do that with my students so it was an opportunity to talk about that so thank you very much for my pleasure thank you i hope i answered in any way (laughs) you got me thinking about things in a different way um which i wasn't doing before and that's a much better place than I started with. So again, not <laughs> not about getting right or wrong answers. Cool. Thank so you. let's let's turn our focus to look specifically at some f- feedback in the classroom. So we we yeah. have our understanding now somewhat. <laughs> I mean, you're never going to totally understand, but equity and inclusion and yeah. So now, when it comes to providing feedback to students, um, what are some common inequitable ways? And I want to start there, you know, so that yeah. we can kind of reflect on our own teaching. So what are that you've seen or experienced? What are some common inequitable ways of grading and assessing or providing feedback that you've seen? Yeah. Well, I had this conversation recently with a good friend of mine, um, fellow, a colleague. And he just, after going back and forth for an hour and a half about all these ideas, he was like, really simply, just ask a teacher, what do your grades mean? And so the idea of a 100 point scale and just saying like, well, you 87 and you 91 in itself, right? Is like, what does that mean? To what extent am I measuring anything? Have I even established what I want to be measuring? To what extent am I measuring student like test anxiety versus their their language proficiency or their intercultural proficiency? To what extent am I measuring whether or not a student has chores to do when they go home versus another kid who doesn't. So am I measuring anything and am I giving, am I measuring the things that I think I'm, that I say that I'm measuring? And am I giving feedback that again is instructive? So is the feedback that I'm giving when I tell you that you got, I say this to my students all the time. If I give you a test back and you got a 96 on it, you look at it and you're like that, you keep it moving. Now, if I give you a test back and you got a 40 on it, then you crumple it up and put it in the trash in the trash. And in both of those scenarios, you didn't care at all about what you did and how you can improve. All you cared about was this like sort of transactional nature of like, did I jump through the appropriate hoops in order to get that that uh that um what's the word? That money back from you, whatever, that right. currency. Thank you, that yeah. currency. Mm-hmm. Um so having a hundred point scale, another thing that was a big change for me recently, recently meaning like in the last four or five years is looking at categories in the grade book. Like, why do we have homework as a category in the grade book? Um, and I, maybe I'm wrong here, but starting to ask those questions, based on what have we decided to weight classwork and participation in a grade book? And have we made it clear, do we proportionally instruct those things in our classroom? Like, are we clear in our instruction of work habits and all that in our classroom? So just starting, one thing I did a while back, which has been helpful, was changing the categories in my grade book to being the modes. Mm-hmm. And like based on the evidence that you give me, this is the feedback of what your performance is in that. And one of the many good things that comes from that is that now I'm thinking that much more about what work am I giving you? 
does this fall? Is this a communicative task that I've given you? Is this an actual interpretive task that I've given you? I want to give you a grade on it. Mm -hmm. So it's made me as a teacher that much more reflective about the work that I'm doing and making sure that it aligns with objectives. And it's made me establish objectives, right? If I don't have an objective and I'm just saying, open up to chapter one, page mm -hmm. one, exercise one. And let's just start moving forward, mm -hmm. which I did for a long time. Right. right. I did that because that's what worked for me, worked. That's what was done to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what was afflicted upon me. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so so looking at the objectives and having feedback that is instructive toward those objectives mm -hmm. um, is like huge steps in that direction. Right. I just got back yesterday from uh, San Diego. I live in Boston and I was doing a workshop out in San Diego and it was all about assessment in uh, proficiency-based classrooms. And it's a real paradigm shift for, for teachers and moving out of the, the traditional categories. And there was so much of the conversation when I do any workshops on assessment it's, we always, I put up on the board a compliance list mm. and uh, when teachers are like, so what's in, what are you, what are you assessing? And then if it's really just grading them on their compliance, we just put it in there. And by the end of the day, we have this Everything. huge list <laughs> yeah. and it's all these things that don't have anything to do with communication or the yeah. modes or anything and just yeah. compliance. <laughs> Yeah. And, and what we see, the cultural lens through which we see compliance, right? That we're even, a lot of us haven't even taken the time to unpack to be like, what do I think compliant behavior even looks like based on who I am, based on, you know, so to what extent do I see these students? There are a lot of students who come from cultural backgrounds that really value leaving space in the classroom or in any sort of social situation. Mm -hmm. So for those kids, you know, when I'm asking for participation to look a certain way, you speak this or you answer this many questions, like culturally, that's inequitable. There are kids who don't have that as a background. So have I, have I even begun to unpack and to, and to sort of critically analyze, like, how much, how much, uh, how unfair is this to students who come from a particular background? And how much am I asking kids? And even if it's not a cultural background, I'm sorry, even if it's not a cultural background, but like, to what extent am I, am I putting on a pedestal um, extroversion. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's an extrovert. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of kids, a lot of our students are introverts. So those things that even just compliance can look different based on different, you know, neurologies, different cultural backgrounds and all that different identities. Right. Yeah, it's uh, the U.S. school system. I think a lot of school systems, but I, my experience has been in the U.S. school system that mm -hmm. it really comes down to is, did you do the homework? Oh. What did you end up doing with it is another thing, but Different did you story, do the right? homework? <laughs> Are you prepared? Do you have yeah. your materials? And yeah. there was even uh, one teacher who uh, actually, she was a professor, she was a university professor, and she was asking really good questions about these are some ways of giving extra credit was what she was saying. So we had this mm. whole discussion about extra credit and who does yeah. it, who does it. That's a whole nother story. But she yeah. said, you know, when I have students, if they go to see a movie in the target language, they kind of get these extra points for that. And so I kept pushing it with, well, you have to pay for it. Yeah. 
you know, so expensive? there's an equity piece. Well, and then she said, oh, but on campus, they're free. And I'm like, okay, so let's keep pushing. Maybe they have to work. <laughs> Maybe they have to work. Yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. So that's yeah. like, yeah, go ahead. I mean, it just, there's so many pieces of that. And a lot of what I struggle with, again, teaching in independent schools is like, how seriously can we begin to have conversations about equity when it costs $40,000 a year to come here? Mm -hmm. You know, when these kids have SAT tutors that charge $400 an hour, you know, mm -hmm. so if we can have these conversations and I struggle with how serious we are about them when, you know, public schools even are determined, you know, their funding's determ determined based on the taxes of, of the area, right? Mm -hmm. How seriously, how serious are we about dismantling these systems that create these inequalities in the first place? Mm -hmm. Um when we're having conversations about equity and all that. Yeah, I'm just um, looking at some of the comments that are coming up from teachers. Oh, and, uh, uh, no, it's good. I'm, I'm following them. And I, there's a lot of like, yes, yes. And um, they, they thought my, my asking you to talk about uh, the anti-racist teaching was like a yeah. little too much. We're live. It says, <laughs> we're live too, bro. Uh, but, um, but you can handle it. We go way back. Uh, yeah, but yeah, just, yeah, uh, just what, going back to the introvert extrovert um this is meredith white who's out there right now listening hey, and she said homie. that yeah uh, a lot of extroverts have learned how to fake it knowing that they'll get the points and the credit absolutely you know, even though absolutely. that's not their natural demeanor <laughs> but there's a performative element to it for the teacher which is a life skill too right like that's a life skill but that's not what i'm so purportedly measuring in my class. Mm -hmm. So all that stuff, work habits, time management, all those things, the argument isn't that they're not good things or mm -hmm. that students shouldn't learn those things. It's a matter of whether or not my grades reflect that mm -hmm. and whether or not my class time, my instruction time reflects me actually teaching you how to do those things. Mm -hmm. So can I, can I like measure that equitably right. if mm -hmm. I've never taught it to you? I've never told you that that was explicitly what the goal was. Yeah, there's that assumption that my my culture and therefore my lens and my cultural expectation is yours, and I'm going to assess it based on that being the norm. Yeah, that's that's dangerous area to get into. <laughs> and if I'm some like 60 year old white woman who's wealthy and has never, you know, so mm -hmm. like and never thought to 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 unpack those things, mm -hmm. you know, and, and unpacking them doesn't mean self-flagellation and i like mm -hmm. using that term but that doesn't mm -hmm. mean just saying like i'm a bad racist person it's just like what i know to be true mm -hmm. isn't universally true mm -hmm. let's get into some details about that raising your hand or asking to go to the bathroom or whatever calling a teacher by their first name mm -hmm. like whatever the things are that we assume to be universally true are not mm -hmm. and to what extent have we forced students to assume our cultural lenses and that sort of contortion that, that mm -hmm. Meredith is talking about, the kids who master it are denying their own cultural values, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's not okay. That's right. not that's not where we want to land and we can right. begin to work towards something better. Right. So uh, there's one, one question that came up in the chat just to go down a little bit more with the homework. Homework always becomes a big topic. 
you know it's yeah. uh grammar and homework that's like a language teachers oh. we could we could do an entire series <laughs> yeah. on grading homework you know i'm um, here for that series too if you want yeah. you know we can okay do this. well you're coming you. back this next season <laughs> you're going to be my first three-time guest you're my first I'm second here. time you're going to be my first third oh time. nice awesome uh so it's just uh more questions about homework categories in yeah. the in the grade books and yeah. so specifically rather than giving like advice on how to do it i'm curious about how you how do you assess or count or do you even have homework in your classrooms i do and homework that i give i have kids do retails and so homework are just an opportunity to recap what we did in class and it's a presentational communicative task that they then, or I can look at as part of a body of work. I don't grade it for completion each time, but I can look at it as a party, as a part of a body of work within inter within presentational communication. Mm-hmm. I might give them something else that's really short, but either way, it's not going to take you more than like five minutes to do. And it's going to reinforce the things that you did. And it's actually going to support a communicative mode. Mm-hmm. So I have ideas about how I want to move forward next year that might make it a little bit more communicative in that mm-hmm. like maybe they compare and contrast something or whatever. Mm-hmm. But either way, it's not getting graded for completion. Mm-hmm. It's just an opportunity to add to your portfolio essentially. Right. And it's taken a while for me to think of like what task can I give that would actually be helpful as opposed to just saying like you should spend 30 minutes doing something. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. yeah. And so it's not a homework category. It's just another communicative task that you yeah. can do at home. Yeah. So it's in the modes category, but it's not necessarily done in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. And it might be right. Like mm-hmm. They might do it before the bell rings or something. Right. Right. So to round out the this equity uh, discussion, so again, this is a, a a personal kind of dilemma of my own. So I'm going to ask you about it, assuming that other <laughs> teachers are there as well. I got uh, so we we often believe, or I should say, I often believe that, or it's my intention at least, that I am providing feedback in equitable ways. Like I, it is my intention. It's forefront in my mind. Yeah, but. I don't know that it always is. Um, I sure. would love it to be perfect that I'm always doing that. But what are some ways that we might be able to recognize that what we're doing is not necessarily equitable for students? One of the things I learned in my early days of teaching in charter schools in Philadelphia, before I had any like background education in education, was the idea of involving students in making classroom rules. Right. So you can have in mind, like, I want to make sure we touch on keeping hands, feet and objects to yourself and whatever, like things like that. Mm -hmm. But co-creating that with the students always got so much more buy in. And I ended up learning a ton about things that I framed it in terms of like guidelines to help us thrive in this classroom. Right. So they're not classroom rules. But I learned so much from genuinely get like guiding them towards the things that I want that I had in mind already, but also genuinely like sort of mining them for input about mm-hmm. what would help them thrive in the classroom. And so similarly, like I have my rubrics. This is the thing I did just now towards the end of the school year is I had my students like we co-created the rubric descriptors. So I typically have like limited 
approaching the standard meets the standard and exceeds. Mm -hmm. And they came up with L for limited, mid for approaching, valid for meets and goaded <laughs> for exceeds. And just something that simple to involve them in coming up with the language. I swear in that moment, no exaggeration whatsoever. The kids were so much more comfortable self-evaluating. Mm -hmm. They were like, nah, that was a mid-performance. Like, I could have been doing this. I, I missed mm -hmm. this, whatever. And it's like, they weren't thinking, oh, mid means 70 or whatever. Mm -hmm. They weren't thinking like, I need. they were mm -hmm. genuinely invested in what that means. So all that to say, involving the student, involving the people to be culturally responsive, to center their personhood too as the drivers of their own learning, um, is to involve them in in like goal setting and 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 progress monitoring and all that and to do it in terms that make sense to them. That's mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, Gen Z language right. that's borrowed from Black people, of course. But um, but yeah, it's language that makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that piece. Yeah, the that question that you said that you asked the students, you know, what will help you to thrive? Yeah. You know, in that co-creation space uh, that came up in a discussion I had um, on motivation with Tracy Rucker um, oh, wow. back yeah. early on in the podcast and having like really having that motivation in the classroom came from those co-created spaces, yeah. you know, yeah. so it was reminiscent of that as you were talking about it. So shout out For to sure. Tracy Rucker as well. Yeah. Shout out to um, Tracy so, uh, you are an incredible inspiration to so many people. And I know I <laughs> asked you. you, yes. And I know I asked you this the last time. I asked all of my guests where your inspiration comes from mm. or where you're continuing to do your work to yeah. be better at what you do. And what does that look like for you when you're striving? Yeah. I know that you are an, a voracious reader. Yeah. Uh, I, I see that all the time in your, your um, Facebook group. But like where, what does that process for you look like when you're trying to be better at this? Yeah, you know, it's funny. One, reading, right? Mm -hmm. And thank you for the kindness and all that. Just touching on what you said earlier on in, in this little episode here, it's just like, I'm so grateful for teachers who are out here attending these workshops and reading these books. Because again, it speaks to the fact that like, we're not assuming that we're done because there's an MED at the end of my name, mm -hmm. right? And that there's so much more work to do. Knowing that even if you did all that work back in 2015, that a 15-year-old in 2022 is drastically different than a 15-year-old was in 2015. Mm -hmm. So we got work to do to figure out what culturally responsiveness looks like in this new culture. So um, I think about this is a random connection, but I've been listening to a lot of these like basketball podcasts and I just got around to watching uh, The Last Dance, which is like the docuseries about Michael Jordan. You think about these amazing players, like all these people who had so much talent to get to the NBA. But then there's these people like Kobe Bryant, who just was always in the gym and was never OK with the fact that they made it to the league. And, you know, that idea that we're spending our summertime reading and we're attending workshops and we're collaborating with people and stealing ideas from Meredith Light, right? <laughs> and being okay with that, knowing that like this thing that's going to work in my classroom was not of my own creation, mm -hmm. but Meredith Light created this and I'm stealing her work. Mm -hmm. um, that, so again, it comes back to intellectual curiosity and, and, and humility mm -hmm. to know that like we're still, 
working and a love of learning. Mm-hmm. I'll end, I'll close this little yeah. monologue yeah. with that. It's a, if I want my students, I know that there's only so much that I can do in my classroom. Even if, even if language proficiency is the bottom line for my students, if that's the end game, there's only so far that I can actually take them. But my goal is to get them to like escape velocity, to get them mm-hmm. out into the world where they're going to take like this student of mine who's going on to study in college and then going to spend a year in France and do all this mm-hmm. stuff. Like that's where they're really going to do all these amazing things. So I want to inspire that, 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 that love of learning that's going to make them continue doing this far beyond them mm-hmm. doing it in my classroom. And that starts by modeling it, by being mm-hmm. that teacher right now that says Joshua Cabral has so much to teach me still, you know, and to be, and I mean this sincerely, to be, <laughs> in connection with you and to be as someone that I consider consider to be a friend to you mm-hmm. has made me such a better teacher. And I'm so, excuse me, I'm so grateful for that. So do that. Be friends with right. people like Joshua. Yeah. Uh, so uh, not to, to keep patting each other on the back here, but um, <laughs> I remember you tweeted out a couple of months ago, just this one random tweet. And you said, Dr. Tinsley, what does that sound like? And I just, <laughs> and I just wanted to put in my vote that I think it sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I, I think um, that's definitely a direction to go in. Yeah. <laughs> remember that tweet? I always remember I know, that. I remember vividly that tweet. <laughs> and I think and I most people said that. Like, yeah, go down this yeah, road. yeah. Go down this it's road. still on the table. Um, I got to get another baby out of diapers before I start giving myself more homework to do, but um, more homework to do. Yeah. So I am by reading all of these, these comments and, and know everyone's listening to this and I'm going to repurpose this episode in the fall to put it out on the podcast as well. There are going to be teachers that definitely want to reach out to you. Uh, So what is the, the best way to reach out to Ben and continue these conversations? Please, please, please stay in touch. I, there's nothing I love more than being in touch with curious teachers and all that. You can find me at on social media, like Twitter and Instagram. I'm AfroFranco2. And then my website is AfroFranco.com. And I have a book club. So that's on the website and on Facebook if you check out AfroFranco. But any of those ways, please be in touch and share with me some of the ideas that y'all have. Excellent. So before we wrap up and say goodbye, I like to always leave teachers with a really actionable, hearty piece of advice because there's so much yeah. that we learn throughout, you know, this 45 minute discussion. But what's a, a good takeaway for teachers as they look at equitable feedback in their classrooms? Yeah. Well, Grading for Equity is a really, really important book to mm-hmm. read and to take your time with. And you know, cultural responsive, culturally responsive teaching in the brain, the grades are at a Hammond is a mm-hmm. phenomenal book to read. And more broadly is to read and keep growing and follow Joshua and listen to the podcast mm-hmm. and follow, you know, Dr. Liam Printer and follow Meredith White and follow me if you like to. And um, yeah, and, and all those great things. It's just keep in collaboration. Well, I thank you so much for uh, your time and your wisdom and sharing your experience, particularly on this first live episode. So thank you so much for being here today, Ben. Thank you. It's been nothing short of a pleasure as always. Thank you, Ben. What are your takeaways from that conversation with Ben Tinsley? I'm sure that you're walking away with more clarity and motivation when it comes to providing feedback to your students that is personalized and recognizes them. Be sure to check out the show notes to connect with Ben and perhaps watch the live recording. 
You'll also see the link to sign up for Talking Points, my weekly email newsletter with tips and resources for language teaching. There are also links to get in touch with me if you'd like to work together, either in person in your school or remotely. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the World Language Classroom Podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at WL Classroom. You can also see over 250 blog posts about language teaching at, you guessed it, wlclassroom.com.